This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is your Sunday Reset. Author and historian Ibram X. Kendi has a new book out. It's called How to Be an Anti-Racist. In it, he argues that the opposite of racist isn't not racist, because that term allows people to hide behind neutrality. Instead, he argues that the opposite of racist is anti-racist. Kendi is also director of American University's Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center. When I sat down with Kendi recently, he talked about why he wrote the book through the lens of his own personal experience. When people think about race and, and, and racism, it's a deeply personal affair. And, and as you know, many people are very, in many ways, closed-minded or even defensive, especially when they're charged with being racist. In many ways, we're, we're taught to close up and to feel as if we're being attacked and to sort of not confess and not admit when we're being racist. And and I knew that the heartbeat of anti-racism itself is is confession. And so I wanted to model that in sharing my own personal story. Well, and it's interesting because you start the book with a confession of your own. You share a story about a speech you gave when you were a teenager, and you describe the speech as racist. Can you give us just a little bit of understanding about what was in that speech that you now call it racist? Sure. So I, I came of age in high school in, in the 1990s. And if there was ever a decade in American history where Americans in general imagined that the central racial problem or the central group that was causing racial problems was black youth, it was the 1990s. And, and so in that speech... I had demonstrated that I had consumed and were even expressing and believing all sorts of racist ideas about black young people. I I said in the speech that that black youth didn't value education, which has never been proven and which has been used to to denigrate black youth. I I said in the, the speech that black youth are the most feared in society, that black youth continue to climb the high tree of pregnancy. You know, I, I basically kept saying that there was something wrong with black youth. And to say that there's something wrong with any racial group is to say racist ideas. And you were a black youth giving that speech. Where did you pick that up from? Where did you take in that information that there were these things that were fundamentally wrong with young black people? I think if you were a black youngster in the 90s, you were constantly told that there's something wrong with you that there's something wrong with black youth. We were constantly told that there was something wrong with the music we listened to, the way that we dressed, the way we talked, what we were not doing, how we were not fulfilling the 
opportunities that came about as a result of this civil rights movement. And and so in many ways, these ideas were, were constantly fed to us. And, and it was hard, I think, for, for black youth to, to, to consistently deflect them. And, and, and some of them I believed and, and consumed and ended up saying them and preaching them to others. And what that shows is this split in your consciousness. Because as a young black person, you were giving this speech that you now acknowledge as being racist. So talk about that split in your consciousness. Well, the split was, on the one hand, I thought that there was indeed something wrong with black youth. I somehow imagined that I was extraordinary, meaning I was not like those ordinarily inferior black youth. But at the same time, I recognized the existence and persistence of racism. And so I simultaneously thought that the problem was racism and black people, which was what I call in the, in the book this sort of dueling consciousness that was deeply sort of at odds conceptually. And you also explain that that dueling consciousness also shows up for white people. Explain that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think historically there have been two kinds of of racist ideas. There's There's been those uh, who have said, let's say, all the racial groups are created unequal, and those who've said all the racial groups are created equal, but black people became inferior on earth. And so within white America, you've had white Americans arguing be- within themselves and, and between themselves about why black people were, let's say, inferior. And so one position was that that black people were genetically inferior and permanently inferior and could never be civilized. The other consciousness was this idea that we're all created equal. And so black people became inferior on earth. Their inferiority is the result of their environment. And so if we change their environment, if we take them out of those broken communities and broken homes and broken culture and civilize and develop them, we can essentially make them white, which essentially meant to be human. And so within the white consciousness, there was this sort of debate <laughs> between these two ideas. As I said, you're a historian, and your book explores the idea that modern conceptions of race stem from the 15th century. This is when Europeans first started enslaving West Africans, colonizing the Americas. And you write that Europeans had to embark on a process of race-making. Unpack that idea for us. Yeah, so for people in our sort of time, it's I think it's difficult for us to imagine a world where conceptions of race, meaning black Africa or white Europe or, or Native uh, uh, America, that these didn't exist. But they largely did not exist before the, the modern world. And, and so what was critical, particularly for the Portuguese, who sort of led the way in, in the transatlantic slave trade and were the first to begin exclusively slave trading in African people, they had to justify that. They had to justify why they were specifically enslaving all of these different looking people from different ethnic groups, from different regions, uh, I should say different communities in, in sub-Sahara Africa. And, and, and what they embarked upon was, was making the case that, no, the, these aren't different peoples with different cultures from different places. It's one people 
one African people, one African people that's, that's worthy of enslavement and that is inferior to the one European white people um, from Europe. It's interesting because as you explore this idea of race, you argue that race is a mirage and, and that it can paper over issues of ethnicity. How do these issues relate to each other? I think that's what's difficult because I think many people now know that race doesn't exist as a scientific or even genetic concept. In other words, geneticists have actually found more genetic diversity within Africa than between Africa and Western world and the rest of the world. Geneticists have found that there's more genetic similarity between people in in Western Africa. Uh, with people in Western Europe than they have with people in East Africa or Southern Africa. And, and so what that means is this idea of this biological black body or, or a white body simply doesn't exist and has never existed. And race doesn't exist in that way. But at the same time, people see race. And in seeing race, even though it doesn't exist, it has meaning. It has meaning because it causes people to value or devalue particular individuals or groups, which then can reinforce racial inequity, which can justify racist policies. And so that's why I conceived of it as a mirage. In other words, it exists, but then again, it doesn't exist. And it's critical for us to to recognize it as that mirage. Well, as we know, the U.S. is a place where enormous disparities exist along racial lines. And I wonder whether or not something falls out of the conversation when we talk about racial justice issues purely within a race-based framework, especially when you think about class and how that intersects with race. In order for us to truly be anti-racist, we have to recognize that all of the racial groups are equals. And what I mean by racial groups, I'm not just talking about Asian people are equal to white people who are equal to Latinx people. When you look at each race, there are a collection of racial groups that are differentiated by class. In other words, black poor people are a racial group, meaning people have specific ideas about black poor people that they don't have about poor people in general, that they don't have about Latinx poor people. And black poor people are subjected to specific policies that other race class groups are not subjected to. And so just like black elites are a racial group, just like black women are a racial group. And, and so I think for us to, to really create equity in this country, we, we, we not only need to create equity, let's say, between races in general, but all of these racial groups that make up the races. You know, so often when we talk about racism, people say, well, racism is something that's taught. And there was a line in the book that caught my eye. You wrote, quote, I had been taught that racist ideas cause racist policies, that ignorance and hate cause racist ideas, that the root problem of racism is ignorance and hate, but that gets the chain of events exactly wrong. So what is the correct chain of events? I think one of the easiest ways for us to understand it is to think back during the enslavement era in which you had people who enslaved black people for one primary reason, to make money. So in other words, the racist policies that were critical in the emergence and and maintenance of, of slavery itself, what actually were behind those racist policies was economic self-interest. 
But then you had abolitionists and even enslaved people, certainly themselves, resisting the enslavement. And so what those slaveholders had to do was make a case for why those racist policies should exist and persist. And that case became racist ideas. In other words, we are enslaving black people because they're the cursed descendants of Ham, uh, that slavery is a positive good. We're civilizing black people after hundreds of years or thousands of years in, in the barbarism of Africa. And so in other words, racist ideas were produced to justify racist policies. And then you had people, everyday people, consuming those racist ideas. And then they started to believe them. And in believing them, they became ignorant and hateful because they didn't actually know that the racial groups were equals and that black people were not the cursed descendants of Ham and that and that there was civilization in Africa. And they, so they came to hate or even be ignorant about these people. And so that's actually... What I find in my historical research that that racist policies have led to racist ideas, that racist ideas have led to ignorance and hate. You also connect American racism to the growth of capitalism. You, you say it's a necessary product of that capitalism. Explain a little more about how the two are connected. I make a historical and empirical sort of argument. Historically, when you look at the emergence of capitalism itself, it emerged in the same place at the same time as the what became known as the transatlantic slave trade. And it grew through colonialism. It grew through chattel slavery, particularly in, in the Americas. And, and so when you talk about its origin and its growth, it originated and grew side by side with racism itself. And, you know, that's pretty much an indisputable sort of uh, historical account. And But then when you look at it empirically, particularly in our time, you can't really separate wealth from race in the United States and across the world. And you can't really separate poverty from race. And the reason being is because racist and, and capitalist policies have long intersected to essentially make it such that, that let's say, black people were, were disproportionately poor and, and white people were disproportionately wealthy. So to your mind, can capitalism exist without racism? It never has. Mm. <laughs> and so I think that's certainly something that I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that it can't. One of the things that scholars who, who study capitalism and particularly the ways in which racism is is reinforcing it is we've actually stopped using the term capitalism and, and instead started using the term racial capitalism to really emphasize the way in which capitalism has always been racialized. And even if you look at the United States, to give an example, you know, one of the reasons why the wealthier forces in this country have been so successful in, in, in accumulating wealth has been because they've been able to split uh, working peoples along racial lines, you know, getting them to see each other as their economic sort of competition or, or their economic problem, you know, as, to, as opposed to the people who are employing them. Well, one of the racial justice issues that's gaining popular traction now, we're hearing about it in the most recent presidential campaign, is the idea of reparations for the descendants of enslaved people. How does advocacy around reparations fit into your concept of anti-racism? When you look at the racial wealth gap in this country, white people have about 10 times more wealth in this country than, than black people. And then when you actually forecast forward, 
One forecast is finding that by 2053, between now and 2053, white wealth will grow. Median black wealth is forecasted, the red line, at zero dollars. And so in other words, you have a racial wealth gap in this country that's growing. And so one of the things that I've sort of encouraged people who are for or even against reparations, who also classify themselves as someone who's for equity, racial equity, and economic justice, and and racial justice, is how do you reverse and potentially even eliminate the racial wealth gap, which is a function of past and present racist policies without reparations? And I've never really been able to hear a policy program that essentially can do that, other than something um, as wide-ranging as reparations. When it comes to action on racial justice, there's uh, some tension, I think, right now. Some Americans on the left disagree with others on how much we should get behind things like universal health care as compared to policies that specifically improve black material conditions. What are your thoughts on that? I don't understand why it can't be all of the above. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there are activists um, and advocates and, and, and organizers who are working on health justice, and you have others who are working on economic justice. And, and so it seems to me that we should be supporting each other, and we should be recognizing the importance of health justice and economic justice. And, and we should be fighting for the most progressive and and deep-seated changes. And certainly a program like free, high-quality healthcare for all would have a tremendous impact on on black health, on on obviously eliminating the the disparities between insurance rates, uh, obviously giving people more access to preventative care. I just recently wrote a piece in in, in The Atlantic that, that talked about that the most consequential White privilege is life itself. And the most consequential black deprivation is life itself. Black men in particular have the highest, I should say the lowest life expectancy in this country. And part of it is is the result of both economic and health-related sort of forms of racism. Practically speaking, for people who are listening and saying, okay, what does a what does my life look like on a day-to-day basis if I'm trying to live as an anti-racist, where do I start? Sure. I think the first thing is an anti-racist is looking out upon their society in their everyday life and seeing the racial groups as equal. Someone who's not denigrating or lifting up any particular racial group. Someone who, as they see racial inequity, they're not stating that's the result of of a particular racial group's inferiorities, but that's the result of racist policies. And then that person is seeking to say, okay, you know, what area am I most passionate about? Or or what place am I most passionate about reforming? And then they follow that passion or that area. They become part of that struggle to challenge racist policies. And they either become part of that struggle through donating their time. So if they don't have that much money, but they have quite a bit of time, they they donate their time to organizations or to collectives that are seeking to institute anti-racist policies. Or if they don't have much time, but they have much money, they they donate and, and finance 
those campaigns and, and movements and organizations. And, and if they have a little bit of each, then they provide a little bit of each. And, and so fundamentally, an anti-racist is a part of the struggle that is challenging racism uh, on an everyday basis. I want to ask you this question because we kind of grow up with you in the book. We see you at all of these different stages in your life. And I hear from parents a lot on the show who say, I don't know how to start these conversations with my kid. Any advice for them? So I'm actually working on a book entitled uh, Anti-Racist Baby that really hopes to provide some of this direction. You know, but one thing I'll say is whenever you are in a space, especially, you know, with somewhat older kids, but whenever you're in a space of inequality, ask, you know, having having a discussion with that child about why that inequality exists or or why people of color are not present, whether starting it by asking them, well, why do you think this is the case? And, and then, of course, you know, engaging them or to sort of see where they're coming from and actually pointing them towards a revelation that that there's nothing wrong with those particular racial groups and and that there's some policies that are actually causing that which children can understand you know i think for instance something like police violence you know you know a kid asks oh or a kid sees you know people of color or, or black people being killed by police and and so a parent can ask, well, why do you think that keeps happening? And and there's only going to be two responses. Either the kid is going to say, well, what are they doing wrong with the cops? Or they're going to recognize the ways in which the policing departments uh, have a serious problem on their hands. And so obviously the parent would, would direct them to seeing it from a more policy or systemic framework. That's author Ibram X. Kendi. His new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is out now. Ibram, thanks for speaking with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. And that's your Sunday Reset. I hope we've been able to reset your brain and ease you back into the work week. For everyone on the Reset team, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.